We are continuing our series, I Want to Believe But. Uh, and I've really enjoyed uh, speaking on this series. We've, we've looked at hurdles that people have to putting their faith, their belief in God. And the word faith just means to trust. Uh, so people have trusts. They have hurdles, or sorry, they have hurdles to their trust. Uh, and so we've kind of we sent out a survey, and we asked, you know, what are those main hurdles? We've taken those ideas, and we've we formed the sermon series out of that, and we've talked about an on-demand God. Uh, and so these are uh, distortions that we believe about God that aren't necessarily true, that aren't true. Uh, and so the first one we look at is on-demand God, and sometimes people uh, don't trust God because he doesn't do uh, what they think he should when they, when they think he should do it. Uh, or the goosebump God, we talked about week two, uh, how I don't feel God, I don't sense God, I don't hear God, uh, how do I know that God exists? So we talked about the week two, the killjoy God, uh, I'd love to follow God, but he just seems like he's out to ruin all of my fun, and there's all these rules, and why would I sign up for that? So we talked about that week three. Last week we looked at the heartless God, which was probably the biggest hurdle the faith uh, throughout history is how do I believe in a good, powerful, loving God when evil exists and suffering exists. So we talked about that last week and God's response to that in the, uh, in the person of Jesus. Uh, and then this week, uh, we talk about uh, the anti-science God. And there was numerous comments in the survey about science and faith. And so a few of the comments I'll just read to you. Um, so I want to believe in God, but... Uh, there's people that don't know as much about everything as we think we do. We are just tiny animals on a tiny planet. How dare we assume to know what created us or how? I want to believe in God, but there's scientific ex- explanations for almost everything. I want to believe in God, but uh, me and my spouse, we're scientists, geologists, and have far more plausible view of why we are here than invoking a God. Uh, I want to believe in God, but there's something bigger than us, much greater than us. There's, there's certainly plenty of things and beings who know more about us and about our origins. Uh, and so this whole idea of science and faith, or science versus faith, uh, is not a new concept for many of us. We, we maybe grew up with this idea, how do science and faith, are these things even compatible? And the irony of this, and I, I was debating whether I should even say this, but just so you know, I fail grade 10 science. Um, and so the irony and the humor of God that I would be uh, preaching uh, 20 plus years later about science and faith uh, when I didn't get past grade 10 science is just, uh, it's kind of humorous. So you might want to write off everything I say from this point on. You're more than welcome to do that. Um, but I believe that science and faith are not opposites. Uh, they're, they're actually complementary uh, and we're going to talk about that. And often we spend, a, sometimes we spend a lot of time uh, in the Bible, looking at the Bible, in, in the sermon time that we're doing right now. We, we open the Word of God uh, because we believe that the Word of God is authoritative. We believe that God has spoken to us through His written Word and through His living Word, which is Jesus. Uh, but obviously, using the Bible as a foundational piece for this discussion uh, would be uh, to really go backwards on what we're trying to do this morning. And so if the idea of faith and science uh, aren't in opposition to each other, and that reasoning actually can point us towards God, uh, I'm going to start with reasoning, and I'm not going to jump into uh, the Bible. So don't freak out if you're a Christian. like, he didn't even open the Bible this morning. Uh, come back next week. We'll open the Bible again. Um, and we'll, we'll come back to the scriptures a little bit later. But I want to start with Logic, And I want to start with reasoning and this idea of an anti-science God and this 
false dichotomy that science and faith are actually opposing one another. Uh, and oversimplistically, you know, growing up, I always wondered, are, are, faith, are people of faith dumb people and then the science smart people? Like, do we have like this dumb people and smart people, uh, people that believe in religion uh, and then people that believe in science? And I remember uh, going back to my grade 10 days, uh, sitting in science class, half paying attention. Uh, and just so you know, it wasn't just science I failed. I failed math. I failed English. I failed, uh, I failed everything in grade 10. So... Um, I think it was more of a posture I had than uh, cognitive ability. Uh, anyway, so, uh, so I remember sitting in my grade 10 science class, and my grade 10 science teacher uh, was an atheist. He, he believed in uh, evolution, and, uh, and he was really, really smart. This hoax, and I, you know, started to believe this idea or this the seed that got planted that religion and science aren't even compatible. Uh, but this is a myth. Uh, it's a myth that only dumb people believe in God, only unreasonable people believe in God, and and it doesn't take very long to actually look out and read uh, scientists, mathematicians, philosophers, and find that there's very, very, very intelligent people uh, that find God the only reasonable explanation for where their reasons have led them. Uh, so you think of s- people like Alvin Platinga, John Polkinghorne, John Lennox. There's a guy named Francis Collins who, uh, who converted to ath- from atheism to Christianity because he, he set out to map out the entire human genome re- regarding uh, the DNA, and he ends up with this book called The Language of God. As he dived deeper and deeper into science, into his studies, he found that science was not actually pointing away from God. Science was pointing towards God. And his reasoning actually led him to put faith in God. Someone like C.S. Lewis, uh, who is one of my favorite authors of all time, uh, actually came to faith because of his reasoning and how he was sorting through logically what he observed in the natural world. And so faith is not instead of reason. Reason is actually, for many people, the ramp to faith. The idea that an anti-science God is true is actually a distortion of God, and it sets us up into this false dichotomy that we need to either accept science or accept God, but we can't have both. And this is a bit of the propaganda that's only been happening in the last uh, half a century, this idea of uh, science and faith being opposed to one another. It actually hasn't been that way for most of history. My my son told me that he learned about how the church has been against science uh, throughout history, and he learned that in school. Um, and often th- there's this uh, reference uh, in church history to a guy named Giordano Bruno, uh, who was, uh, he was actually martyred. Uh, he was uh, burnt at the stake uh, because, of his, because of his belief in science, and the church was anti-science. And that's actually not true. Uh, the church burnt him at the stake because of his wrong beliefs about the Trinity and the divinity of Jesus. Uh, makes it so much better, right? Uh, so the church has a messed up past. I'm not saying that it doesn't, but what I am saying uh, is that this narrative that science and faith are opposed is not actually true. And it's not even historically true. Uh, and so uh, we all believe certain narratives, uh, which we're going to talk to about in a, in a second. Society in general has struggled with 
every scientific advancement. In fact, it was the scientific community uh, that had trouble accepting that the earth revolved around the sun, that the earth was round, and often we think oversimplistically that the church had a struggle with that. Actually, the church uh, generally accepted these scientific advancements. It was the scientific community um, that was hesitant to accept them because they had, they had seen the world and the universe in a certain way for thousands of years. What we call modern science actually grew out of the garden of the Christian worldview. Modern science was born from a Christian worldview. It couldn't have come from any of the other beliefs at the time. If you think about animism, and animism is, is the belief that divine beings are in everything. And so uh, if you go back in time, uh, if you believed in animism, that there's divine beings in everything, you wouldn't poke and prod rocks or trees because you're actually poking and prodding the gods. And so we didn't want to disrupt the gods. So people that had, an, had that type of worldview were actually held back from exploring uh, science. Uh, polytheism, people that believed in many gods, uh, their explanation, we talked about this last week, their explanation for what was going on in the world was because gods were behind everything and the storms and the sun and the rain and the waters. And, and so they had this view that actually prevented them from thinking rationally about what was happening in the world. Christians, on the other hand, who believed in one God, who believed that this God actually created everything, and brought order out of chaos, started asking questions. They thought if there was a God behind everything, then God has designed everything. And so as we, as we observe things, as we research things, it's not just science, it's actually faith. It's not separate from faith, it's actually worship. We can worship God by observing what's happening in the world around us. So out of Christianity comes a scientific worldview. A scientific worldview that believes there must be a structure to the things in our world. That there's reason and there's logic, that there's order instead of chaos. It was people that had faith in the God of the Bible uh, that actually opened their minds to the scientific world, to poke, to prod, to wonder, to discover. The great heroes of Christianity You'll find were theologians, scientists, were philosophers. They were all intertwined because they, they believed that God was behind everything. And so studying everything actually brought them closer to God. The university was a Christian invention in the 12th century because the church wanted to answer questions about God within diverse disciplines. And so this idea historically that the church has been against Christianity is just not true. Now, it's true that certainly there were Christians that were, sorry, against scientific discovery. There was Christians that were certainly against scientific discovery, just as there was anybody who was against the new understandings that were being discovered uh, at any given time. But you can see how things have twisted over time uh, that my kids now in the public school learn in their curriculum uh, that the church is against science. Uh, and it's interesting that we've come to that place. So people would say, but Christianity, uh, you guys actually can't do science because you are coming at it from a, from a certain bias. Your faith position doesn't allow you to be objective with the facts. Maybe you've said this, maybe you've thought this, maybe you've heard this, and so I just want to say right from the outset that that is correct. Busted. If you're a person of faith, you cannot look at facts 
objectively. So that is true. But if you're an atheist, you don't believe in God. If you're an agnostic, that you believe that you can't know anything about God, you need to recognize that you also have a faith position. That you don't come to evidence and logic as a blank slate. None of us come to any evidence with a blank slate. As we're engaging information, you're doing it as a person who has a particular perspective and agenda. It's an impossibility not to. You know, if you want an example of this, I mean, this is, I'm in danger of using examples that are stronger than my point, but just look at the current world of the, pol- the political world we live in, the pandemics, the vaccines. You can see two people who look at the exact same facts and they say, see, I told you so, they're making my point. And you, you, you listen to people argue, anybody had this experience? They're arguing about the same thing and they're using the same points, the same data to actually affirm the position that they already have. Has anybody experienced this in the last year? Or is it just me? Okay. So you have an example right now in a real world where people come to certain data or observations, but they come with a certain paradigm or perspective in which they read that uh, data from. This is true. We all have it. Everyone has a faith commitment. Everyone has a faith commitment. If you're an atheist, you have a faith commitment. We all believe something that you cannot prove 100%. I am confident of that. We all believe something that you can't prove 100%. Our beliefs are the lenses by which we look at the evidence. Uh, when, I, when I go on my mountain bike uh, out in the mountains, I have these uh, mountain bike sunglasses that I put on just for mountain biking because what do they do? Uh, they actually highlight certain colors and diminish certain other colors when I'm riding. And so the glasses I put on, I see browns and greens and these things pop, and so you can see the trail and what's happening in the landscape as you're riding. Uh, But pretty soon, I forget that I have these on. And I can get in my truck, and I can drive back to the city, and I'm looking at the world, and I'm I'm looking at the world with those colored lenses on, and, and I start to see brown and green and everything. And I just think, this is reality. Well, it's not that what I'm seeing is untrue. It's just being tinted by the perspective in which I'm looking through. And so think of it that way, that all of us, we actually come to the world with a certain lens on, with certain sunglasses on. We see certain colors, and none of us actually can see anything truly objectively. And so we need to start there and recognize that. And if we can't recognize that we all have a, our own bias, it's difficult to have any type of constructive conversation about science and faith in general. Um, Richard Lewontin, who is an atheist, uh, an evolutionary biologist, mathematician, geneticist, says this, it is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our prior adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. So what is he saying? He's saying that his science is not driven by fact, but a certain philosophy. He's admitting that he comes to the scientific data with a bias. 
He's already coming up with a philosophy that's predetermining his conclusions or his outcomes. And so I admire what he's saying. He's not pretending that there isn't a bias. He's saying, as an atheist, I come to the data with a certain leaning, with a certain perspective, um, and I cannot allow a divine foot in the door, not because the data doesn't allow it, but because my philosophy and my perspective does not allow that to happen. When you think of Copernicus in the 1500s, and he's saying the sun isn't revolving around the earth, the earth is revolving around the sun. Uh, Who was the biggest opposition to this idea? It wasn't the church. It was actually the scientists. Why? Because they were teaching that the sun evolved around the earth for thousands of years up until that point. When we think of Edwin Hubble, who looked through the telescope in the early 20th century and realized that the big, at the beginning of everything was the Big Bang, who pushed back on that? It actually wasn't the faith community. It was the scientific community because that conclusion reeked of religion, that there was a beginning, that there was a single moment in space, time, and manner where energy actually all started from. There was a cause, and then there was these effects. And so it was originally rejected by the scientific community because it smelt like religion. And so we need to uh, differentiate between operational science and origin science. Uh, we need to make this distinction. Operational science, you know, is, you, you could observe, you know, water boiling as an example, and it boils at the same temperature every single time, and we can do it over and over and over again with the same results. Uh, and that would be operational science. When you did a science project in high school, uh, you would have done some, something around operational science and demonstrated something that you could prove. I mean, I didn't. I, I just chose not to participate in science projects in high school. Uh, not in the formal way, but I, I participate in science projects all the time. I remember uh, me and my friends getting Coke bottles and Mentos and, th- and throwing them in the hallways of school and watching uh, everything explode all over the walls. And uh, that was my science experiment uh, in high school. Uh, very effective. I did not get an A-plus from my grade 10 science teacher uh, for that project. Uh, but I could do that every time, and I would get the same results. So that's operational science. Uh, when we're talking about origin science, we're talking about a past that happened once. It's not repeated. It's an irregularity. In fact, science, scientists would call this a singularity. Uh, it was a singular event. We can't say how this happened, but we know that evidence is pointing back to a point in time where the singular event happened that has never happened again. We'll come back to that a little bit later, but that's a singularity. And so there's a difference between operational science and origin science. We need to be clear which one uh, we're talking about. We also need to understand uh, the intent of science. The whole purpose of science uh, is to answer the how. Science tries to answer the how. It doesn't answer the why. Science will never prove or disprove the existence of God. And And so when we think about faith and science being opposites, it's only because we have forgotten what faith and science actually are. Science exists to answer the how. If you're asking science to answer the why, you're asking it to do something other than science. When the conversation of faith and science comes up, uh, we naturally uh, start moving towards origin science and talking about the existence of things and how things came to be. Um, So very shortly after that, the conversation will move uh, towards evolution. 
And so some people say, I don't need God because I know that there's scientific conclusions uh, that we have from evolution. Evolution has given us the answer for origin, for meaning, for morality, for destiny. And there's a few problems with that. I just want to run through really quickly. Uh, Number one, with evolution, uh, you have to prove that evolution proves there is no God. And that's a massive assumption to make. Even if you say you're a or naturalistic evolutionary theory, how does the conclusion that evolution is a reality bring you to the place of saying that God, therefore God doesn't exist? Richard Dawkins, who wrote The Selfish Gene and The Blind, the blind Watchmaker, uh, simply states that because of evolution being true, there is no God. And other scientists who are atheists, who don't even believe in God, are saying, stop saying that kind of stuff, because you actually have to prove something. You, you can't just say, because of this, there is no this. There's an there's, there's intellectual ramp there that you are completely avoiding. You know, as Christians, sometimes you're like, you know, I wish that person would just stop talking and be quiet because they're giving Jesus a bad name. Have you ever felt that? You're on Facebook, and you're like, oh my goodness, Okay, I want the world to know that not all Christians are like that. How many of you guys have had that experience? Okay, I feel like this is what's happening a little bit with the scientific community and Richard Dawkins. It's like, okay, uh, not all scientists are like that. It's kind of like that. So you have to have a ramp. You can't just say, if evolution is true, therefore there must not be a God. Uh, That is a big gap to make. Number two, evolution itself, in its classic form, is actually not a accepted across all scientific disciplines. I mean, we call it evolutionary theory, uh, but in our school systems it's often taught as fact, uh, but scientists will not affirm that it's a fact. It's one theory. Uh, The Big Bang, as an alternative example, would would, uh, be seen as something that is actually accepted across scientific disciplines, that that is something that uh, is reasonable to think that it did happen. Uh, And so evolution is not really affirmed as fact because it still has a lot of gaps. It still has a lot to prove. Uh, you know, it can't explain first cause, you know, why things came to be. It can't explain things like the complexity of the human eye, which apparently is a thing. Um, don't ask me about the complexity of the human eye, but apparently that's a gap in the evolutionary theory. Uh, it can't ex- explain fossil records and why there's no transitional fossils or half-formed fossils. Uh, listen to this from Stephen Gould, one of the biggest proponents to evolutionary thinking, who himself is an atheist, and this is what he admits. The extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology that evolutionary, the evolutionary tree that adorns our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of the branches. The rest is inference. What this means is that there's an entire worldview uh, being taught that, as fact that is mostly inference. The third thing we just got to recognize about evolution, and this is more from a philosophical standpoint, uh, is that evolution by itself is a contradictory worldview to hold. Why? Because if you actually think it through, evolution on its own cuts off the very branches uh, that it's standing on. Evolution in the classic sense would say what you think, what you think you think, you only came to that, uh, it, you only came to that realization because you are motivated by survival. Your thinking has only ever been about survival, physical survival, emotional survival, uh, trying to get your genes into the next gene pool. 
And so our cognitive, our cognitive faculties are not an objective view of reality. They're what you think in order to survive. And C.S. Lewis rightfully acknowledges that unless human reasoning is valid, no science can be true. Okay, unless human reasoning is valid, no science can be true. If my mental processes are determined wholly by the motions of atoms in my brain, I have no reason to suppose that my beliefs are true, and hence, I have no reason of supposing my brain to be composed of atoms. I'll let you just reflect on that for a second. The minute you say everything I believe is only because of adaptive choices, not because of actual truth, you cannot trust your own reasoning. Mitch Stokes says that atheists have a reason to doubt whether evolution would result in cognitive, cognitive faculties that produce mostly true beliefs. And if so, then they have a reason to withhold judgment on the reliability of their cognitive faculties. This ignorance would, if atheists are consistent, spread to all of their other beliefs, including atheism and evolution. There's no telling whether unguided evolution would fashion our cognitive faculties to produce mostly true beliefs. Thus, atheists who believe the standard of evolutionary theory must reserve judgment about whether any of their beliefs are produced by these faculties are true. This includes the belief in the evolutionary story. Believing in unguided evolution becomes built with its very own reason not to believe in it. Are you guys following this? Uh, so if that's actually your worldview, you can't actually trust your worldview, is what it's saying. And this is something that Charles Darwin knew when he came up with evolutionary theory. He knew this. Uh, and this is often referred to as Darwin's doubt. And this is what Darwin said. He said, within me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the conviction of a man's mind, which has been developed from the mind over lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? Darwin's doubt. If what I'm saying is true, then I can't trust what I'm saying is true. And this was the mental conundrum he found himself in. An atheistic evolutionary worldview leads to a place of despair because it leads you to a place of putting faith in yourself only to find out that yourself is not actually trustworthy. John Lennox who is a, a Christian uh, mathematician and bioethicist, says either human intelligence ultimately owes its origins to mindless matter or there is a creator. It is strange that some people claim that it is their intelligence that leads them to prefer the first to the second. I'll give you a second with that one too. He's referring to the same mental conundrum so there, there's holes in evolutionary theory, and, I, and I'm not even here being pro or against evolutionary theory, but, but evolution has often been com combined with atheism in a philosophy that has been said to be anti-Christian or anti-faith. And we need to remind ourselves uh, that it is just a theory, and even if the theory is true, it does not even explain if God is real or not. Uh, so coming back to science, science tries to answer the question of how, it doesn't answer the question of why. Uh, and so as we're talking about science, we're thinking, okay, Matt, okay, but what about the Bible? What about the Bible? Well, let's, let's talk about the Bible for a minute here. The Bible 
uh, is not a science textbook. I hate to break your bubble, your hopes, your dreams. Uh, the Bible is not a science te- textbook. This is not to say that the Bible isn't true. Not at all. This is a false dichotomy that has already been set up for us. So we either think, well, the Bible must be a science textbook or it must not be true. No, the Bible is not a science textbook, and the Bible is 100% true. The Bible actually is very, really interested in telling you the how. So if science is interested in telling you the how, please recognize that the Bible wasn't written for you to understand the mysteries of the how. We often bring a 21st century question and perspective to a selection of texts that were written as late as the first century and then far earlier. The Bible is a faith book. It tells you the story of God. It tells you the story of God's people. It tells you the story about why. It tells you the story about who. It tells you the story of how to interpret what you're experiencing in the world. In fact, the questions that humanity has been asking for most of history, questions of origin, morality, meaning, and destiny... Out of these four kind of big questions, science really can't answer any of these. And that's not to say there's no value in science, but we just have to be very clear on what the purpose of science is and what the Bible is trying to tell us. Science might attempt to answer the first question of the origin, but it ends up with an unexplainable mystery, and it will end up with people feeling a sense of despair because there's no meaning. It may give you the answer to destiny if you combine it with the philosophy of atheism, But the answer is nothing, really. It's simply survival. It's drink and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And again, we end up with this position of despair and hopelessness. And these questions of origin, morality, meaning, destiny, we got to recognize that science does not exist to answer these questions. These are the ones that science can't answer. And these are the ones uh, that the Bible, God's word to us, actually is intended to answer to help us with. And so obviously, as we talk about origins and we talk about science and the beginning of things and how we know things, uh, if you're uh, a Christian or you're familiar with the Bible at all, you start to ask questions about the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And we could do a whole series on Genesis chapter 1. And so I'll try and make it brief here. Um, Many Christians have wrongly thought that they had to believe what the Bible says about origins or what science believes about origins. And again, this is a false dichotomy. If you open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And so we read at the beginning of Genesis, a who? That God was before everything. We read that God said, that God spoke, and at God's word, things came into existence. Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that it was good. And you see this over and over again through the days of creation. And so people say, oh, okay, right there. You're talking about the days of creation. You believe that the earth was literally created in seven days that just reeks of religion and unrationality. And I'm not here to actually argue for or against the seven-day creation. Uh, I'm only going to tell you that the Bible itself doesn't necessarily make that explicit. In fact, a careful reading of it, and I'm surprised at how many people read the Bible and just assume that it's talking about a literal seven-day creation. I'm not saying God couldn't have done it. I'm just saying that, uh, here, let me read it for you. The fourth, the fourth day of creation. How do we... I mean, how do, we, uh, how do we measure time? 
How do, we, how do we measure it? We measure it by the rotation of the earth. We measure it by the earth going around the sun. These become measurements of time, right? Yes, okay. So day four. So we're on the fourth day. God said, God spoke, let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, days, and years. I mean, how do we know the first three were days if the days weren't created until the fourth day? Okay. Um, so anyways, I'm just saying that uh, the Bible itself was not written for you to understand the how. Uh, and there's very intelligent followers of Jesus uh, that believe in a seven-age creation, that, that these days, the, rep- the, the word day is actually re- representing something outside of a 24-hour period of day. And if God is outside of time and space and God was there in the existence of all things, that is not even a far stretch to imagine that at all. All I'm saying is that you don't have to check your rational mind at the door in order to believe in God. The Bible was given to you to actually believe that there was a God at the beginning of all things that God spoke things into existence, that there is a why. Uh, A major theme in the Genesis story is that God, yes, created all things, but then God created humanity in his image. God created humanity with a cognitive faculty to even have these conversations. God created us to create. God created us distinct from the rest of creation, that we can have authority and responsibility in the world. These are not unscientific ideas. In fact, I feel like those ideas that we see in the very beginning of the Bible uh, is the foundations of science in general. In fact, the Bible tells us that even without the Bible, just in the world itself, that things point to God. In Romans chapter 1, it says, What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. See, the Christian worldview says that there is a God, that God has been loving us, he's been wooing us, even outside of the Bible, in creation itself. As people dive into, sol- into science, into cosmology, into biology, into geology, uh, into all these different disciplines of investigating the world, it actually all points back to God. Alan Sandage, who, might, who is considered maybe the greatest observational cosmologist of all time, says this. He says, it's my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than can be explained by science. And so science is valuable. Science is amazing. And some of you have been created uh, more scientifically minded than me. That you can, you can actually dissect things and research things. Uh, and, and that activity in and of itself is actually intended to move us towards worship, towards awe, back to God. Now, I grew up in the prairies. And so uh, maybe that's why I love the mountains so much, because I grew up without them for my whole life. Uh, And I remember my first time visiting the mountains. I was eight years old, and we were going uh, to visit the Black Hills. And I'm like seeing these big hills, these big mountains for the first time in my life, and I'm just like blown away. I've never seen anything like this before. Uh, And then we got to uh, Mount Rushmore, and it was different. It was still spectacular, but it was different because everything else I saw, I maybe had a natural explanation for, uh, but you come to Mount Rushmore, and the explanation you're left with when you look at something like Mount Rushmore is that there was an intelligence behind the design. 
I mean, the faces on the mountain didn't just come to happen by, uh, by circumstance, uh, by chance, that the, you know, the wind blew, there was erosion, and that somehow it formed these, these master sculptures of, uh, of these dead people on the side of a mountain. That didn't just happen. And there's moments in our life where we're, we look at things, and when, we, when you stop to reflect, you recognize that there's an intelligent design behind everything that we see. And in the scientific world, what we're finding more and more and more and more is that the more that people dig into what they see, the more evidence that there is of an intelligent design, the more mysteries we find, the more things that we can't explain, the smaller you go. When you look in biology and you, you, you dive in way beyond observational science, way down into uh, to DNA, beyond what Darwin ever could do, We've mapped out the human genome, and I mentioned this about Francis Collins earlier, that that was enough for him to actually put faith in God because of what he discovered. There's enough code in a single-cell organism, like an amoeba, to fill an 1,000 cyclopedias. There's an actual code. There's an actual code that could fill in 1,000 cyclopedias. And, and scientists look at that, and they think, that seems more like Mount Rushmore than just like an ordinary mountain. It seems like there's a... Intelligent design there, so much so that Francis Collins called this book about his research the language of God because he saw God behind everything as he went smaller and smaller and smaller. If you go bigger and bigger and bigger, the same types of things start to happen. The further out you look, the further back in time you get, right? Uh, so if you're looking into space, the further out we look, the further back in time we get because uh, that space, you're looking back in time uh, because of light years and all that kind of stuff. And what, and so this has actually led to understandings about the beginning of things, that there was a beginning and that the earth has been ever-expanding over time. Alan Sanders, I already said this, but he said, my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than can be explained by science. And we, we begin to recognize that as science goes deeper and starts to point out the evidence of God, either as it goes smaller or as it goes bigger, uh, that, that the evidence is pointing towards a God. The evidence is pointing towards a God. Robert Jastrow, an American astronomer and planetary physicist, said, we now see the astronomical evidence that leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. That the chain of events leading to humankind commenced suddenly and sharply at a definitive moment in time, what is often referred to as the Big Bang, in a flash of light and energy. The scientist's pursuit of the past ends in an, in an exceedingly rare development unexpected by all except theologians. That there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. He goes on to say... At this moment, it seems that as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. And so the questions that we're asking, these why questions, they're, they're, they're not how questions. They're not just questions about the physical universe, about the material world. They're metaphysical questions. Metaphysical questions. 
Meta means after or beyond in Greek. And so what it's, what it's saying is once you come to the end of physics, you will have deeper questions that science isn't going to be answered for you. Questions beyond science. Metaphysical questions. And as scientists dig and they explore, uh, you know, they, they, will, they will come to something they have come to something that they call, and I referred to this earlier, as a singularity, an event that happened at one moment in time uh, that has not happened again. In the beginning, there was a bang, and something happened. We don't know what, we don't know how. Uh, we know that there's cause and effect, and that it started somewhere, somehow. And in Genesis 1, we learn in the beginning, God spoke the world into existence. In John chapter 1, another... Uh, Another a text that talks about the creation of the world says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, the Word was God. And then the Word came and made his home among us. And through the Word, everything was made, and there was nothing that we see that has not been made without him. And we learn of a second singularity, not just one in the beginning of the world, but one 2,000 years ago, where God invaded history to come in the form of Jesus. See, if you believe in the singularity of the beginning of the world, it's a very short step to believing in an intelligent mind and being behind the beginning of all things. And if you can believe that there was a God who was at the beginning of all things that spoke the earth into existence, and you can believe in that initial singularity, then it's not a far step to actually believe that this God invaded our time and space in a different singularity 2,000 years ago. An event that in and of itself has great historical precedence Precedence, which we can't even talk about, we don't have time this morning, but the, the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then the Bible speaks of another singularity that is yet to come, one where this God who created everything in the beginning, who invaded our history 2,000 years ago, is actually not completely finished what he started. And that there, there, is, a, there is something that he's been up to, that he's going to come back and make everything right, and all of those moral existential questions, those morality questions, those destiny questions, those meaning questions that we as humans created in the image of God are all asking, actually will come to the resolution in a singular moment in the future. And so, I want to go back to this singularity 2,000 years ago. Jesus comes, and he's with us, and he is meeting with his disciples and he has uh, the bread and the wine, and it didn't look anything like this. I'll tell you that. Okay. Um, and, and so this bread and the wine, it was something that they, they, they often partook of together when they were with one another. And Jesus, actually, at the communion table, at the Passover uh, meal, is telling his disciples that... This is a singular moment. This is a special moment because God is up to something. He's invaded history. And every time you have this bread, this wine, or this really stale cracker and this juice, I want you to remember a couple of things. I want you to remember that you are not God. I want you to remember uh, who you are and whose you are. I want you to remember that in this singular moment, I invaded, and remember me, remember what I've done, remember what I've taught, remember that I came, that I forgave you, remember that I invited you to experience the life of God, to know your destiny, to know your meaning, to know that you were created to be with God. And the third thing, I want you to remember that I'm coming back. And so every time you have this 
bread, every time you drink this wine, every time you have this cracker, every time you drink this juice, I want you to remind yourself that what I started is not yet finished. That you're asking questions that science can't answer. And so when you do this, you are actually coming back to the mystery, coming back to faith, coming back to trust, not just in your own reasoning, but into a story that's beyond yourself. And so I would invite you to open this up somehow. to join me in this practice that followers of Jesus have been doing for 2,000 years because they recognize that there's something beyond science, that there's questions of why, of who, of what, that we are dependent on God, we're dependent on Jesus to actually lead us through. And so Jesus said, every time you eat of this, this bread, remember that my body is broken for me for you. Remember that God, at a singular point in history, invaded time and actually made himself knowable to you. Eat this in remembrance of me. I would invite you to eat that now. And Jesus said this, this wine, this juice, Every time you take it, every time you drink it, I want you to remember that a particular point in history, this unknowable God actually came and gave you meaning, gave you purpose, gave you relationship with what we thought was unknown, that this is my blood. It's been spilt for you. It demonstrates my love for you, the forgiveness of sins, and it invites you to be a part of a bigger story that is beyond yourself. Would you drink this in remembrance of me? God, we thank you uh, that you created us in your image, that you created us to think, uh, that you created people uh, with rational, logical minds. Lord, we thank you that faith is actually the end point where reason brings us to. We thank you that you are all in all. We thank you that you're the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. So no matter how people come to see you or know you, Lord, whether it's through your word or whether it's through creation, whether it's through science, we thank you that you are bringing and drawing all people to yourself. Lord, I pray for each person that you created uh, with this mathematical, scientific, rational bent that felt like maybe I've had to check my brain at the door to be a person of faith. Lord, I pray that you would expose that for the lie that it is and you invite them to dive super deep into the world that you created because that honors you and that worships you and it will draw them to yourself and we trust you in this and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you, band, for leading us. Thank you for joining us for worship this morning. Uh, if you have scientific questions, I know a lot of really smart people that go here, and you can come, and I will point you to them. Uh, no, seriously, we have... Uh, what I love about this faith community is that we have people of all walks of life, all different giftings, all different wirings. And Jesus tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And some of you were created not to be like me. I'm kind of more on the other side, the artistic side. And some of you are very rational people. 
And if anything, I want you to hear this morning that God created you that way. And he wants you to embrace it. And he wants you to dive in deep. And you will find joy and you will find him in the places that you look and that you dive. And I pray that we can reclaim scientific discovery as a form of worship and not as something that we need to be afraid of and avoid. It's been that way for most of history. Let's rediscover it. Let's enjoy it. Uh, If you would like prayer for anything, I'd invite you forward. We have prayer teams that will be available at the front. We would love to pray for you. Let me pray for you and bless you as you leave. Uh, Father, we thank you for this community. Uh, We thank you again for how you've made us all different. How you've made us to worship you. And so, Father, I just pray. uh, I pray, Lord, that uh, we would not believe the lie that says we have to check our rational brains at the door and we recognize that you created us that way, that you created us with this cognitive faculty, this ability to discover, to research, to find you in every crevice of creation. Would you open our eyes to the awe and wonder of who you are and what you've done? May we begin to see you in everything and everywhere and recognize that we are part of a bigger story. So we thank you. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen. Again, prayer teams are available. Starting point week two will be next week, not this week. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.